I'm Vermont Edition producer Matthew Smith, and I wanted to let you know the podcast you're about to listen to has been edited for clarity and brevity, so we saved you some time to get right to the good stuff. Enjoy. This is Vermont Edition. I'm Connor Cyrus. For the past six months, retail cannabis has been legal in Vermont, giving Vermonters over the age of 21 access to smoke or eat the sticky icky, wacky tobacco, devil's lettuce, kush, cannabis, or whatever you want to call it. Vermont was the first state in the country to legalize cannabis through its legislature. Now there are more than 40 cannabis retail shops around the state and even more cultivators, testing labs, manufacturers, and wholesalers. The Cannabis Control Board is responsible for administering the adult use and medical cannabis programs in the state. And after months of reading the rules for the new industry, the Cannabis Control Board is now seeing the rules in effect. So today we'll check in with them and see how the state is doing when it comes to meeting its goals, mile markers, and if there are any changes or updates coming to Vermont cannabis. Later in the show, we'll hear from a new retailer putting its women and LGBTQ-owned model into practice and with a patient advocate who wants to see changes to the state's medical cannabis rules. To get us started, I want to welcome my first guest, Bryn Hare. She's the executive director of the the Vermont Cannabis Control Board. Bryn, welcome. Hi. Thanks. Thanks, Connor. Good to be here. Excited to have you. Now, Bryn, retail shops have been open for about six months now. Uh, What's the role of the Cannabis Control Board now? Yes, thanks. So uh, the role of the Cannabis Control Board, as you mentioned in the outset, is to oversee the adult use program for cannabis sales in Vermont. We're also responsible for overseeing the medical cannabis program. And the legislature recently also transferred the hemp program to the Cannabis Control Board, too. So we've got three programs that we're running. <clears throat> and with respect to retail, you know, we've there's really been an incredible amount of work that's gone into Uh, setting up the regulatory framework for retail sales. And uh, you're right, we've got six months of sales now. Um, So it's been a really exciting year. So what's new and ongoing for you that you couldn't do until there was legal sales happening? Yeah, so, you know, I think that what we're seeing right now is really an industry that's very much in its infancy. You know, if, if you consider... The original legislation that created the Cannabis Control Board and authorized adult use sales, that legislation created this incredibly compressed time frame um, for the market to roll out. And to you know illustrate what I mean by that, we are really six months into a regulated sales of cannabis to adult to adults in Vermont. But a year ago, the Cannabis Control Board was only authorized to have three full-time staff members. And we hadn't even yet built the application portal through which people could apply for their license. So that's what I mean when I say the last year really represents just an incredible amount of work by both the industry players and also the regulators to get where we are today. Um, So, you know, having said all that, there are really some early signs that we're on track to meet some of the legislative goals that were set for the industry. Uh, For example, the legislature directed the board to encourage small growers and legacy market operators to join the regulated community. And the vast majority of businesses that the board has licensed so far are small cultivators. So 60% of all of the licenses that we've issued at this point are to people that are growing on just 1,000 square feet or less. Um, and, you know, that's significant because that's really smaller than a micro-grow in most other adult use states. So 
Another place where I think we can see that we're meeting our goals is that the legislature gave us an environmental sustainability mandate. And the board has really devoted itself to prioritizing environmental stewardship as a foundational principle. Um, and 70% of all of our licensed growers are growing outside. So just to give an idea of why that matters, um, indoor cannabis cultivation really has a staggering carbon footprint. The amount of energy that it takes to produce enough indoor grown flour to make one pre-roll could produce somewhere around 20 beers. So the fact that 70% of our growers are using the sun to grow their flour is a real sign of success on that front. So speak, So let's pivot a little bit from talking about success. How successful um, economically has the cannabis industry been since it's opened? Is this profitable for people who've invested in it? Yeah, so I think, you know, we've got steadily increasing revenue um, as more businesses are coming online and more growers are getting up and running. You know, if you're looking at the excise tax revenue to as like a financial indicator of the success of the industry, <clears throat> 1.6 million was the total intake of excise tax revenue as of the end of January of this year. So that represents the first four months of retail market uh, sales. And, you know, if you think about it, since we opened retail just in October, there were really just a handful of retail shops even open in October and November. So we're projecting, the board is projecting that the state is going to take in roughly three and a half to $4 million from the cannabis excise tax in the first like nine months of the retail um, cannabis industry being open in FY23. And those, you know, latest numbers, that $1.6 million is really in line with those projections. And what are the rules with what the state is supposed to do with this excise tax? Yeah, so 70% of the cannabis excise tax revenue goes into the general fund. And 30% of the revenue, um, with a parameter on it that it's not to exceed $10 million per fiscal year, um, is to be used to fund the substance misuse prevention programming that the state runs. Um, so that's the that's sort of the breakdown of the excise tax revenue. There's also a 6% sales tax on cannabis, um, and that's earmarked for after-school and summer learning programs. Let's go to the phones and let's talk to uh, Joey and Heartland. Joey, welcome to the show. Yes, hello. How are we doing today? Doing great. How are you? I guess I can't complain. I'm at, I'm at work, so it's all good. All right. What's your question or comment? Okay. Um, myself and my wife wanted to apply for a permit, but it seems as though the permits are so expensive and being non-refundable that it's hard for people without deep pockets to, to get into the game, so to speak. Thank you for that call, Joey. Um, Bryn, how do you respond to the upfront costs that people have to put in for these applications? Sure. So uh, applying for a, if you're looking to, it certainly depends on what type of license you're looking uh, to obtain, but for small growers, and that's uh, people that are growing up to 1,000 square feet of plant canopy or 125 plants if they're growing outside, uh, that fee is $750. Um, it's a little bit more if you're an indoor grower. I think it's about uh, $1,500, $1,500 if you're growing inside. So the fees that we set for the really smallest tiers of cultivation are were set with, um, you know, with have, keeping in mind that these were really supposed to be accessible license types. So it's true that you know $750 or $1,500 can be a lot of money for some folks, but Getting into the cannabis industry can be an expensive endeavor, considering how tightly regulated it is. If you think about the regulations that um, 
we impose uh, for cultivators or all different license types with respect to security and cash management, those sort of operational expenses can also be a barrier. Um, so, you know, I think that the board really tried to set these fees low for the people for, you know, the lowest types of uh, cultivation license, the smallest cultivation tiers, so that we could encourage folks to get in the door um, and try their hand at uh, participating in the market. But it is certainly a financial consideration to think about the expenses involved with um, with complying with the regulations. And as the Cannabis Control Board was building out regulations for legal cannabis, there was a focus on social equity applicants, giving licenses to applications that were Black or Hispanic. If the applicant is from a community that has, uh, quote, historically been disproportionately impacted by cannabis prohibition, or if the applicant or a family member has been incarcerated for a cannabis-related offense. So here's the question. How effective has this push to social equity applicants been? You know, I don't, I think it's too early to tell right now. Um, It definitely was a priority of the board at the outset um, to encourage and, you know, reduce barriers to entry for people that qualified for the social equity program. Um, I think that right now that we're, we've licensed about 15% of our licensees are social equity applicants. So the board prioritized those applications from people who qualified for social equity status, meaning we reviewed them first. Um, They have also been prioritized for field technical support and assistance um, from our field agents. And uh, the fees are waived for them, too. In year one, all of their fees are waived. And then over the first four years of their business, the fee sort of gradually increases um, with, with, you know, the idea was to give them a smooth on-ramp um, to have some success in the industry. So I think it's going to take a little time before we can see if these businesses are achieving success. I can tell you it's the goal of the board um, to see these businesses succeed so that these communities that have really been disproportionately impacted by prohibition get to see some of the benefit, the economic benefit of uh, this new industry. Does that mean we'll see any tweaks or updates um, to the future to encourage more diverse applicants? Yeah, you know, we we are undergoing a rule change right now um, to provide some clarity to the portion of our rule that governs the social equity program. Um, the board also has instituted an economic empowerment program. And uh, in that program, we really additionally prioritize uh, folks that are either other types of minorities, women-owned businesses, veteran-owned businesses. Um, so we also try to provide some benefits to those folks as well. Let's go to Howard in Putney. Howard, welcome to the show. Oh, hey, thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon to everybody. Great show, good timing. Um, yes, I am a, a, a vegetable farmer uh, in uh, Westminster, Vermont. Um, right now I'm in Putney making a call. Uh, better cell phone coverage. Um, and my, my question is, uh, we, we have greenhouses. We've grow, uh, we've, we're licensed to grow hemp seedlings that we can sell to the public, and we've been doing that uh, for five years. Uh, I wanted to do the same thing for cannabis, and I am not allowed to do it. Uh, Customers could go. They could buy uh, THC seeds legally. Uh, They could get them in mail order. They could buy them in shops. But I'm not allowed to the same seeds, grow the plants, and sell them to the people who want them. It's equivalent 
to uh, being able to buy tomatoes and eat them and buy tomato seeds, but I'm not allowed to grow the plants to sell them to the gardeners. Howard, can we get uh, to your question? Yeah, why is it um, the rules are, are not, they're supposed to be small farmer friendly. And as a small farmer who just wants to grow seedlings to sell to uh, customers, we're not allowed uh, to do that. Thank you for that call, Howard. Uh, Bryn, how do you respond to um, Howard's um, issue? Yeah, well, you know, I can I can point out that there is, you know, obviously the board is bound by what the what the law provides, what the legislature has said, are the sort of bounds of this market. Um, the there is a bill moving currently in the legislature that would allow for an additional license type. Um, and it's it would be a propagation license. So it sounds similar to what uh, Howard is uh, suggesting here. It would allow for a grower to grow a certain canopy of seedlings, immature cannabis plants, um, and sell those seedlings uh, to other licensees um, across the supply chain. And, <clears throat> you know, the idea there was really that these, like, illicit market seedlings really shouldn't be the source material anymore for the regulated market. We really need a clean and tested source of cannabis for our licensed growers. So um, there, you know, hopefully if the bill makes it all the way through and gets signed, um, there will also be uh, an additional license type that may be just right for Howard to get into the industry. Now, Bryn, on the topic of equity, I want to go back to this conversation just to round it out. Uh, we got an email from Russ and Danby who asks, I understood some profits from cannabis sales in Vermont will go for reparations to those who have been incarcerated for using marijuana in the past. I inquired about this at my local dispensary but could not get an answer. What can you share about that policy in Vermont? Sure. So that um, is not currently the policy in Vermont. Um, the board has been asked by the legislature to submit some legislative reports on the social equity program. And in our latest social equity report, which you can find on our website, we submitted it in January. We did uh, recommend to the legislature that they allocate a percentage of the excise tax revenue um, to either the Cannabis Business Development Fund, which is a fund that is administered by the Agency for Commerce and Community Development to provide grants um, to people who are social equity applicants who are participating in the cannabis industry. Um, and it was another recommendation that the legislature set aside a portion of that excise tax revenue for a special fund um, that could be used to fund uh, projects in the state that would essentially um, have the impact of sort of redu uh, harm reduction impact on communities that have been most impacted by cannabis prohibition. So not exactly um, not exactly what uh, the, your, the emailer was talking about, but something similar. It has been a recommendation of the board that some of the revenue that's being generated by this industry should really be reinvested in the state um, to benefit those people that were most harmed by prohibition. I want to go back to the phones, and let's talk to Stephen in Stratford. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I, 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 I have um, a problem with um, that um, cannabis is, um, is, a, is a drug. Um, a lot of people say that, but cannabis is also a sacred plant, just like tobacco. But, but tobacco um, is run by corporations. And Right now, um, what, what's happening in Vermont with um, cannabis is the same thing. We don't sell 
um, male plants. We don't sell um, leaf. We're only selling a very high THC, and we're not informing people what's going on with cannabis. So people have no idea what they're doing. They're, they're, They're coming in. Some people who have never used it are coming in, and they're getting this really high THC, and they think that that's what cannabis is. But it, but it's a whole plant. It's not just that THC. So what's your question? I don't really have a question. I mean, I, I think that the, that the, the board is doing a, a pretty good job. I don't like the fact that they're, that they're selling cannabis with, um, with um, poison on it, you know, because it's sprayed for bugs and it's sprayed for um, other things, you know, and then people are smoking that. Stephen, I think we got it. Thank you so much for the call. Um, Bryn, a lot in there, but I do want to take the time to just address one thing with how is cannabis being regulated in terms of pesticides, in terms of the things that are being put on the flowers to help them grow? Sure. So pesticide, that we have a very robust uh, testing set of testing requirements for any product uh, that reaches the market. Um, Pesticide testing, human pathogen testing, uh, heavy metals testing. There's a number of requirements um, that can be found in our rule. And also we've got a guidance page on our website uh, that elaborates on the rule with respect to what is required for testing. So it's it's incredibly important that the board is as sure as it can be that the product that reaches the consumer is um, is free of pesticides, is free of any harmful um, substances, any human pathogens, and our our testing protocol is is one way that we are being sure that the product is clean. Another way um, that we're that the board, another way that the board is really kind of tracking this is that we've instituted um, a product registration system. We were required by the legislature to register all products that are available for sale. Um, and that process allows us to look at the, certific- the certificate of analysis or the test results for every, every product um, that's being proposed for retail sale to make sure that it um, is, meets the threshold requirements for safety for, the, for any products that are going to be available to consumers. Now, Bryn, I want to get into enforcement. There have been a lot of rules and regulations around all of this. And there have been some violations from uh, various cannabis shops, growers, and others involved in the industry. Before we get into specifics, what's the general approach or policy by the Cannabis Control Board that the Cannabis Control Board is taking when it comes to addressing violations? So, look, enforcement is interesting uh, because there's been, I think, I would say a real conscious effort to move away from the previous sort of law enforcement type mentality when you're dealing with cannabis. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, one of the mandates that the legislation imposed on the board was to, you know, make an effort to transition the illicit market to the regulated market. So we had to think really carefully how to operate our enforcement arm, given this mandate that we were, you know, obligated to bring folks in that had been formerly operating on the legacy market. So we want to build trust with our regulated community and, you know, um, having law enforcement with sort of firearms and badges doing inspections of grow sites would have really hindered our efforts to transition the legacy market. So we opted with, um, you know, hiring a a team of compliance agents that are really familiar with the plant um, and they do a great job building trust out in the community. 
And I would say that our approach, you know, because we've been so successful in transitioning some of the legacy market to the regulated one, um, we've got a lot of licensees who have been doing what they've been doing, you know, for quite a while without this regulatory framework hanging over their heads. So, um, you know, and this is dependent on the type of violation, but I would say we are really striving, especially in these early days, to take an education-first approach to compliance by helping businesses understand what the rules require and why we require them and helping them to come into compliance if they're struggling. You know, I think the next real challenge for the board will be to help businesses understand that the responsibility is really on them to read the rules and understand them and maintain compliance with them. Some of our licensees are doing this really well, and, you know, others others are struggling a bit. I want to talk about this trust that we're building as we are, you know, venturing into this new industry of legal cannabis or legal retail cannabis. And there have, I've read about several infractions where fines have been reduced or suspended. Why is that and how does that build trust with the community? Right. So, you know, as you as you've pointed out, this industry is new. Uh, it's given our kind of compressed timelines. It's it's actually remarkably new. As I mentioned a year ago, we hadn't even finalized our rules. So even though I, th- you know, I really pride myself on having um, some of the most easy to understand uh, administrative rules <laughs> that are out there right now, it is t- tough for some people to, you know, r- wade through those rules and really understand what they mean. So I think that what we, our approach, the education first approach is really um, kind of understanding that we're trying to meet people where where they are right now. I want to be clear that, you know, that approach that we're taking doesn't mean that we're not enforcing our rules. We are issuing um, some notices of violation. The majority of our compliance actions so far have been related to advertising. You know, this I think is really consistent with like the Vermont ethos. The legislature imposed a cannabis advertising law that's really among the most restrictive in the country. And one of the things that requires businesses to do is to submit their uh, proposed advertisement to the board for us to review and approve before the business can publish the ad. So, um, the and there's something in sure. there that only fifteen that it has to be made with fifteen percent of the audience is reasonably expect that the owners that make these advertisements fifteen percent of the audience can't be under twenty one. That's exactly right. So the audience that either sees the ad or hears the ad has to be 85% or more over the age of 21, which is a pretty, which is a pretty significant burden. Um, so, you know, many of the, our businesses have run into trouble with the advertising law. So we've, we've done some education there. We have sent out many letters of warning, helping to educate folks about what is considered advertising and what compliant advertising looks like. But not all the violations have been around advertising. Some of them have been around growing. Um, is Are they weighted differently in the Cannabis Control Board's eyes in this first year of opening? Well, yes. I mean, I'd say the types of, violation, types of violations are weighted differently. And, you know, our rule four is our compliance rule. And, you know, we kind of create these four categories of, of violations and sort of consistent with the severity of the violation, the impact on public health or safety. Um, uh, and we base our 
or any administrative penalty that we impose or any like sanction on the license that we impose on the severity of the violation. So, um, you know, in year one, I think that we are trying to do this education and, you know, take into account as like a mitigating factor that people are still learning. Um, so if we are sending out a notice of violation, uh, we are sort of providing the opportunity to come in and talk to the board about what happened. And um, and sometimes we're able to agree on a, on a lower uh, penalty for that violation. Um, Don in Burlington asks, please explain the absurdity of requiring a cannabis dispensary to dedicate a full-time employee to monitor and record IDs at the door. But I can walk into a state-run liquor store and buy a similarly age-restricted product even without showing an ID at all. This seems overly cautious, wasteful, and biased. <laughs> well, <laughs> I won't comment on the policy there, but I will just point out that um, – the, you know, it is a, is a requirement, a state law requirement um, that we make sure that we're checking IDs at the door. You know, the one thing, it, it's a totally valid point. The, the one thing I'd point out is that, you know, alcohol is not prohibited at the federal level. Cannabis is still a Schedule I um, federally prohibited substance. And the, you know, state regulatory agencies don't get a lot of guidance from the federal government in how to carry out these programs in a way that isn't going to prioritize us for federal enforcement. But the guidance we do have is pretty um, clear that the the way to prevent your state from, from getting federally enforced is to make sure that it doesn't uh, – no cannabis product winds up in the hands of a minor – um, you know, there's some other there's some other guidelines too. Make sure that um, there's not criminal enterprises in your regulated in- industry. Um, but you know, I think it, it's a it's a major priority of the federal government that um, people under 21 aren't accessing regulated product, and it's also a priority of the board. So um, I understand her point, <laughs> but uh, you know, it is it's a pretty important requirement for the board to carry out to make sure that uh, young people are not accessing this product. I want to go back to the phones, and I want to talk to Eli in Irisburg. Eli, welcome to the show. Uh, hey, thank you for, for having me. Um, I do want to give the board a shout-out. I think they've got a tough job. We're a, a Tier 2 cultivator up here, and uh, with my friend Ben from Off Peace Farms, we've really been working on cannabis as agritourism, um, you know, and trying to find creative ways that we can educate consumers about cannabis, also about cultivation, show our outdoor grows, uh, you know, and try to get people here to buy our farm products, uh, stay at, you know, Off-Piece Farm has a hip camp site, um, and it really adds a lot to the local economy. So, you know, we're making great strides into the tourism community. I think they realize the possibilities of cannabis, um, and I think that's something where hopefully we can continue to work with regulators and figure out things like events, uh, consumption, you know, down the road, maybe even direct sales from farms. Um, but I think that's something that, uh, you know, there's a huge opportunity to do this, especially with all of our outdoor cultivators. So uh, that's something that I'd love to see other uh, other people get involved with, um, you know, and give a shout out to uh, our farm tours and, uh, and off-piece farm. So thank you again. Eli, thanks so much for the call. Uh, Bren, um, are a lot of uh, farmers and uh, growers kind of like trying to find other ways to monetize this industry? Yeah, I think that this, and we're going to see a lot of creativity out of this industry. Um, you know, that that is one example. You know, uh, Eli mentioned a couple of things, special event licenses, um, direct-to-consumer sales. I just want to, you know, make it clear that those 
are not currently authorized by uh, the legislature. You know, we have a really explicit set of licenses that we are allowed to provide to provide to people who apply for them. Um, and direct to consumer, the legislation currently prohibits this. So a cultivator could obtain a retail license um, in order to sell their product directly to the public. But, you know, it is it is more expensive than a cultivation license, a small cultivation license. And there are security and cash management requirements that you'd have to meet in order to have a, have a retail license. Similar to special event licenses, um, those are not currently allowed. But, um, you know, I think that we can all imagine a, a future where uh, there could be like a cannabis farmer's market or some sort of outdoor concert for people that are over 21 that's screened from the general public. So, um, yes, I think these are these are all ideas that are bubbling up from the industry, and um, it really is up to the legislature to decide whether or not uh, those should become a reality. I want to go back to the phones and talk to Gordon and Bridgewater. Gordon, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. What's your question or comment? I'd like to know why the sale of seeds at $95 for Ten seeds fights the black market. That's what I was quoted at a local cannabis shop. Uh, thank you for that call, Gordon. So, um, Brent, I think the question or the comment here is the prices of a retail cannabis shop seem to be much higher than what you know is people are buying the same stuff for in the black market. How do you mm. like? What's the justification there? Yeah, you know, the pricing is pretty interesting to think about because I think that the prices um, right now in the Vermont market is really dependent on where we are, like where we are in our life cycle. I think Vermont has a slightly higher price per ounce uh, than the national average right now. Um, and I imagine the, the regulated market price is, is higher than the illicit market price. But there are states with really a glut of product on the market that have much lower prices. So that would be states like Oregon, California, Washington, the West Coast states, and even Maine, I think, has a lower than average uh, price per ounce right now. So I think as more cultivators uh, bring their product to the regulated market and there's a larger supply available, the prices will come down. Um, So, you know, the board's really going to be engaged in a balancing act to allow as many people as possible to enter the market so that um, we can see some lower prices. But, you know, if our license canopy becomes too large, we're going to um, we have to be careful that we are preventing a large oversupply. Um, so it's a balancing act to make sure that the supply is meeting the demand of the state. I now want to bring another voice into the conversation, and that's Jahela Dudley, owner of the new retail cannabis shop Grass Queen in Burlington. Jahela, welcome to Vermont Edition. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So first things first, I just, we just have to talk about the name Grass Queen. I think for a lot of people, it's maybe an inside joke for the queer community. Um, tell us about it. Yeah. Uh, Grass Queen is a little bit of an inside joke for the queer community. It's also just, you know, the female version of this plant is often used um, to describe our great medicine. Um but yes, Grass Queen was was the Grass Queen, and <laughs> it always will be. Yeah. It's almost like you have to say yeah, Grass Queen <laughs> when you're yeah, talking yeah. about it. That's exactly that's exactly right. Um, so, uh, you own this LGBTQ friendly dispensary. Um, what's the point? And does wearing that as a badge of honor open doors for you as a business? 
Yeah, I think so. So Grass Queen really began because what I saw in the legal market when I was working out west and home in Vermont was that it was really dominated by cis white men. And specifically that happened with the hyper-feminization of this plant and the language that we tend to use in this industry. I mean, if you go into a cannabis grow, you might be introduced to the ladies or the girls instead of flowering plants. And we use the term, you know, moms instead of stock plants, which is, you know, not commonly heard in a tomato greenhouse. Um, you also see in a lot of cannabis companies owned by men, you know, there's logos that utilize women's bodies or faces to sell their product. So for me, Grass Queen was a way to sort of get away from the bro culture, I might say, and create a safer cannabis space to better serve women and the LGBT community. And it turns out, you know, um, women and queer folks really like weed, too. <laughs> um, and how has business been for you? Business has been good. At the beginning, it was really slow. You know, as Brim said, Vermont has the strictest advertisement um, regulations for cannabis in the country. They made it really difficult for us to let the community know that we're here and what we do and what we have. Um, but folks that have been coming in have given us a lot of feedback about how welcoming the space feels to them. And, you know, that's that's really what I wanted. Um, you know, and we have a lot of things like low-dose edibles, those who have had, you know, that quintessential awful experience under an unregulated edible um, are learning about dosing with our low-dose edibles. So that's been really exciting. And what do you see missing within the rules and regulations that have been set up for you as a business owner? Or what do you think could be better to help make the transition smoother? Yeah, I mean, I think treating small local cannabis businesses like small local businesses um, I, I think, you know, as members of the cannabis community, we're creating millions of dollars of revenue for the state, but sometimes it feels like we're given little attention by our legislators or even our governor or congressional delegation, you know, who should be out there fighting tooth and nail to tackle some common sense cannabis regulations um, on the federal side. But I think because we're so new and more importantly, this plant, you know, by many is still considered a dangerous substance by a lot of the older generation um, people who might be dominating the state house. I, I think there's a lack of legitimacy that that we're seeing in Montpe Montpelier, um, and I think that it also trickles down to maybe there not being a lot of or enough resources for the cannabis control board because they're tasked with a lot. Um, and so one of one of the little issues that you know have been mentioned is just the product registration. There's a lot of business owners waiting on that to come in. Um, I think that'll take care of itself with time. But, you know, while we're waiting, it is it is a little painful. Yeah. And I just want to ask, I think a question that a lot of people have, maybe the first time they're going in is what are some of the things that they need to know? And I know that one of the basic things is learning the difference between Endica and Sativa. Can you just give us a little like uh, explanation of what the two different flowers are for people who are curious about the industry, but maybe don't know where to start? Sure. I think you'll see more and more people try to get away from the terms Indica and Sativa. But generally what we're taught is, or what I was taught as a bud tender working at West Indica, in the couch and Sativa stand up. So there's those terms to sort of describe or generally describe cannabis as, you know, being more of a heady, energized high versus more of a let's chill out and hang out high. Um, but, you know, cannabis has 
thousands and thousands of strains, um, cultivars um, with different terpene profiles that all affect um, how you might feel when consuming cannabis, just like, you know, a beer or a glass of wine might hit you differently. Um, but yeah, generally when you hear indica, it's more of a chill. And when you hear sativa, it's a little bit more of an energizing head high. And what are the terms that we are trying to use instead of those two ones? I think what we're trying to do is describe more, um, more of the characteristics of the high that you might feel like this high, this cannabis strain might be really good for getting some work done. Um, I was really focused on this cannabis strain or this cannabis strain really helped me sleep very well. And it had these type of terpenes. Terpenes are sort of the, um, they're found in the central oils of the plant and they're really the flavonoids of the plant. And they, um, they bring different characteristics to each cultivar which may make it affect you differently. That is Jahela Dudley, owner of Grass Queen in Burlington. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Now, Bryn, when you hear Jahela talk about some of the challenges with the industry, especially in Vermont, are there any quick fixes to some of those um, challenges that she brought up? Well, you know, with respect to product res- registration, um, I can really understand why businesses are anxious about getting their product to market. People have worked really hard. They've put a lot of money on the line to get their product into the market in these really early days of adult use. And I know that there are licensees that are really financially suffering as a result of investing everything they had into their business. And the board takes that really seriously. But, you know, from where I sit, I'm a regulator. My job is to make sure that we are as certain as we can be that the products that are reaching the consumer meet these baseline requirements for safety and sustainability. And given the amount of staff that the legislature authorized for us and the timeline we had to get our systems built, I actually think we've done incredibly well. We've registered around 500 products so far, and that list of registered products is available on our website for people to review. The one thing I think that people forget is that when the CCB was created, we weren't handed a slate of functioning systems to process applications or register products or track inventory or review advertising or any of our other legislative mandates. We had to build each of these systems from the ground up, and that really takes time. So product registration, that system is going to be around long after I leave the board. So we need to get it right to do our best to ensure that the quality and the safety of Vermont's regulated cannabis um, and obviously that's important for Vermont consumers, but it's also really important for the Vermont brand, which ultimately is going to benefit the entire industry. And before we continue our conversation on the retail cannabis industry, I want to check in with how medical marijuana in the state is doing. In 2004, Vermont legalized cannabis for medical use, but now there are retail stores. So what's the difference and is it still necessary? To help me answer those questions, I want to welcome Jesse Lynn Dolan, the co-founder of the Green Mountain Patients Alliance and founder of the Vermont Cannabis Nurses Association. She's also the president of the American Nurses Association and Vermont. Jesse Lynn, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So, Jesse Lynn, um, today cannabis is widely available for anyone who's 21 or older. Why does Vermont need med- medical carved out in all of this? Well, that's a great question. And unfortunately, it's not as easy as we might think, being that we have a pretty antiquated medical program here in the state of Vermont that we really haven't seen a lot of positive changes over the last few years. So I think you're asking a really good question, but it's not as simple as uh, 
you know, yes, we should have the program. It really comes down to the drastic changes we need to see in the program to make it enticing and for someone to have a good reason to be a medical patient instead of just go to an adult use dispensary. So what are the, I guess, what's maybe the difference between options or uh, what's the point of the medical option if there's so much legal uh, retail cannabis? Well, you would hope that somebody who has a medical card has some support, whether that is from their doctor and their provider giving them that card, or that's from the medical dispensary themselves and the staff having that level of education. Here in the state of Vermont, it's interesting to note that we don't have mandated education for the medical program above and beyond the adult use by any means. So one would one would really be looking to the medical program for some more education and support, as well as what you mentioned, there is a difference in product availability. So a patient who needs specific medication that is concentrated cannabis can only get that in the medical program. So that is absolutely one of the reasons somebody might want to be a medical patient is to have access to specific medication, as well as not paying the exorbitant state tax that is taxed for adult use consumers at an adult use retail. When you're a patient, you don't have to pay those taxes at a medical dispensary, which can be a really big difference when it comes to affordability. So another aspect of the medical cannabis system in Vermont you'd like to see change is the medical conditions that can get a cannabis prescription. Why is that important? Well, what we see here is a very limited list of reasons somebody can get a medical card compared to other states. So instead of, you know, a doctor only being able to prescribe or verify a condition to allow someone to then have medical cannabis access, there's only a few conditions. We really want to see that expand so that the healthcare professional has the right to make the determination based on symptoms rather than a specific disease process. Because as we've seen in the past and we will continue to see, we're going to continue to need to advocate and go to legislators every year to asking them to add another disease process. You know, a couple years ago, we added PTSD. Now we're trying to add some other conditions, but in Instead of individually putting one condition on and fighting for that, we'd really like to see the state honor the education and understanding of healthcare providers to be able to make that determination as to whether that person should have a card based on the symptoms that they're struggling with that we know cannabis can support. And my final question to you is you'd like to see who and how many cannabis plants can be grown at once for medical users. Tell me about that. Absolutely. So right now, a cannabis medical patient can only flower two plants. That is a very low, arbitrary number. When we look at the amount of plants someone needs to grow based on the strain they need, based on concerns that can happen during growing, based on needing concentrated medicine for a patient, they need more plants. They need a higher yield. So right now, that number two is extremely low. We are looking to have 12 plants be the flowering plant limit and an unlimited veg plant count, which means the plants that aren't flowering, we should be able to grow as many of those as we want to prepare and get them ready to then take a couple months to turn into our medicine. So we really are looking to increase that plant to increase people's autonomy. And as you and I discussed yesterday, when we look at the price difference, a patient 
it, it costs a patient to grow indoors versus outdoors. We know more people, as Bryn already mentioned today, are growing outdoor because not only the carbon footprint, but because of the, the fact it's way more affordable for someone to do. So to give someone one season a year to grow two plants is not at all supportive for a patient. We need to see that outdoor plant count be a minimum of 12, if not even more, for the outdoor season. That's Jesse Lynn Dolan, the co-founder of the Green Mountain Patients Alliance and founder of the Vermont Cannabis Nurses Association. Jesse Lynn, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, Bryn, as you hear that, I just want to give you a chance to respond, uh, specifically when it comes to the number of plants um, pe- uh, ner- medical for medical use. There we go. <laughs> sure. <laughs> So um, the first thing I would want to point out is that the board, and Jesse Lynn mentioned this, the board is really hamstrung in the changes that we are able to make to the medical program by what the medical statutes say right now. It's really up to the legislature at this point to amend the medical cannabis laws so that the board can implement those laws in a way that improves the program. And by improves the program, I mean ensure you know increased access uh, reduces barriers to access and reduces costs for you know the medical patients and caregivers. So, um, with respect to her point about uh, the plant limits, there is a bill. The bill I was talking about earlier that's moving through the legislature um, does increase the the plant count limit for patients and caregivers, and it increases it to a little bit less than what um, Jesse Lynn was suggesting to six mature plants per patient and 12 immature plants. Um, so I think if we go much beyond that, we really are looking at some, um, you know, we, the board has to think about how to regulate that. And there are so many security requirements, as we discussed before, surrounding the cannabis plant that we'd have to be careful um, about increasing that plant limit too much. So in the next 30 seconds, um, what do you, like, what's the main takeaway for people that are listening to the show? <laughs> well, um, I think the main takeaway is that the you know the the retail market is up and running. Um, we do have a ways to go as the market matures. There will be um, you know a, a greater variety of products available in the stores, and the board is really um, trying to prioritize preserving the medical program in the face of a real changing cannabis market with the introduction of adult use sales. That's Bryn Hare. She's the executive director of the Vermont Cannabis Control Board. Bryn, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Connor.